Reading is taken today from Isaiah 64, verse 1 to 12. Isaiah 64, verse 1 to 12, if you want to follow in your Bible. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have given us over to our sins. Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us as we pray. For we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Well, thanks very much, Sally, and uh, good morning to you all. Very good to see you all. It's been a tough week, isn't it, after the uh, tragic shooting in uh, Tunisia last week, in which uh, 38 people were killed, uh, amongst them 30 British people. There's been much discussion about um, how should we respond as a country. So David Cameron talked about uh, a full spectrum response to extremism in schools and uh, universities and prisons. Uh, The Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, discussed the possibility of airstrikes on uh, ISIS targets in Syria. And even before the attack, the Foreign Secretary, Philip Hammond, was saying that we have to be vigilant as a society about the large number of foreign fighters being recruited by Islamic State. But in our passage last week in chapter 62 of Isaiah, we read about the watchmen that the Lord has posted on the walls of Jerusalem. Those who are never to be silent, day or night, who are not to give themselves rest. They were not to give the Lord rest as they called ceaselessly on him. They were the the great prayer warriors who are called to be vigilant but in a very different way. And we looked at the example, remember, of Anna in Luke's Gospel uh, and Simeon, who who had been praying ceaselessly for 84 years. 
And then her prayer was answered as she saw the Messiah, the baby Jesus, in the arms of Mary and Joseph as they brought him to the temple. It was a challenge to us today to to be vigilant, to call on the Lord ceaselessly for him to fulfill his promises, that he will come again, and that he will make his glory known. But I guess the question in many of our minds must have been, though, well, what does that prayer look like? If we're meant to be vigilant, if we're meant to be prayer warriors ourselves, how exactly should we be praying? What kind of prayer does God want us to pray? What kind of prayer does he like to hear from us, his people? Well, this morning we have uh, a model prayer, if if you like. Um, It's a prayer that is full of praise and passion and penitence. It's full of patience and persistence. And uh, that first verse that Sally read for us, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. That is full of, of passion, isn't it? It's a calling out to God. But before we come on to the prayer warrior, let's have a look first of all at the first section of chapter 63. If you turn to that, the page before, because here we are presented with a vivid description of the, the divine warrior. Where does he fit into the, the picture? Well, we were introduced to him back in chapter 59, if, uh, if you remember. Um, then we had a bit of an interlude between chapter 60 and 62 of, of Isaiah, where we looked at um, uh, the people of God, the transformed community of God's people, with a privilege of being part of God's people. But now we return to him, and there's much in common between these two, these two passages. 63 starts with that question, who is this coming from Edom? It's a question probably of the watchman, looking out, who is this man coming from Edom? Edom is the long-standing enemy of Judah, um, probably uh, represents all the enemies of God's people. But the one coming is a king. It's somebody who is robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength, who says, it is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Having had the promises that God made last week about the year of the, uh, the Lord's favour. How God will delight in his people. We're reminded there are still things that stand in the way of God fulfilling those promises, of him bestowing his blessings on his people. But here he's saying that is going to be dealt with. His anger, as we've said before, and it comes out quite strongly in these few verses down to verse 6, is not the angry, anger of a crazy murderer or a tyrant. It's not the anger of footsteps trampling up the other stairs. No, it's, it's the righteous anger. The righteous anger of a holy God against all that is evil, against all that is wrong in this world. And there's plenty of that, isn't there? It is good. It is consistent with the character that God has. His, his attitude towards evil, that is consistent with a good God. If he was not angry about it, it would mean he didn't care about it. But he cares deeply about the wickedness of this world. It's the anger of a father whose child has been abused. The anger of a creator whose creatures have perverted themselves and turned against their creator. 
It is, we're told, the day of vengeance in verse 4. But the driver, the motivation for that vengeance is not the sort of revenge that, that we often think of, of getting our own back to make us feel good when we have been wronged. And that is uh, what you see so much, isn't it, in our world? It's the theme of many films today. Think of the last uh, James Bond film, if you're a James Bond fan, Skyfall. Uh, think of that villain, what he was trying to do. The whole film was about him going to any lengths to humiliate, to discredit and kill M. That was his aim, because he felt he had betrayed her. And that need for revenge had consumed him. But the driver here is very different, isn't it? Because if we look again at verse 4, the driver here is a desire for the redemption of God's people. It says, It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. Which is very similar to what it said back in chapter 59. Have a look back at that um, couple of pages in verse 17. Again, the divine warrior here. But look at what um, is motivating him. Actually, over the page, verse, the end of verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. And later on in verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. This sort of vengeance is about justice. It is about freedom for his people. And we, we had a brief insight that this morning, didn't we, with, as Mark described the situation in Nigeria. How Christians are being killed, how, how their homes are, are being destroyed, their churches are being burnt down. What do they want? What are they crying out for? They're crying out for justice, for peace, and for freedom. For the divine warrior has come to redeem his people. He's come for justice. He's come to redeem the world. But as we will see later on, as we saw earlier in that illustration that that Mark gave for us for the children, the problem is that the evil that becomes extreme in these horrific acts of cruelty that we've, we've been witnessing is present in seed form in each one of us. The divine warrior, who is a picture of Jesus, comes to break the power of sin, to break the power of evil in each one of us so that we may go free, so that we are free from its influence. And in both chapter 59 and chapter 3, what we see is that there is no one else who can do this. Is that what it says, isn't it? There is no one else. We cannot do it for ourselves. We need the help of the divine warrior, the one who will do it for us. And the great news is that Jesus has achieved that salvation for us. Even though it meant turning the wrath of the Father away from us onto himself to defeat evil, he had to take that evil into himself. It seems then quite a... a, a cranky gear shift from the end of verse 6 in chapter 63 into to verse 7. But when you look at it, in some ways it's not, but we're moving from the divine warrior to the salvation that we have been given to prayer. We're moving to the prayer warrior. 
When God says back in chapter 62, he wants the watchman to give him no rest. What kind of prayer does God want? Well, in short, it's prayer that's consistent with the character of God. The way we view God will affect the way we pray to him. If we think God is a sort of capricious God, that he's prone to sudden mood changes, then we will try and negotiate with him, we'll try and barter with him. If we think he's a hard taskmaster, then we'll just be trying dutiful, we'll be, try to be dutiful, just try and earn his favour, just do what is right. If we think he has no interest in the detail of our lives, then we'll just go to him when we've got big problems. But if we view him as a father, as a gracious father who wants to, to answer the prayers of his, of his children, then we will come to him with confidence, we will come to him in dependence, we enjoy the intimacy that he wants to have with us. And what we see in this prayer from verse 7 on through to the end of chapter 64 is the attitude of someone who knows he can do nothing in his own strength, somebody who's totally reliant on God, on his undeserved loving kindness, on his grace. Yes, in Ephesians 6, we're told to put on the whole armor of God. We're, we're told to go into to spiritual warfare ourselves, to, to go into battle. But what do we do? We put on his armor. We put on his strength. We don't go in our strength. And so this prayer that starts in verse 7 starts with praise. Because that is how we remind ourselves of how great and powerful and loving is the God we trust. So the first thing about the prayer warrior is that he's praiseful. Verse 7, Isaiah proclaims the goodness of God. He tells of the compassion, the kindnesses of God. And not just in an abstract sense, but actually pointing to things that he's done. He's shown that compassion. Look at how he starts. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He praises God, look for in verse 8, for the affection of fatherly love he has for his people. Surely, it says, they are my people, children who will be true to me. He praises him for his compassion. The fact in verse 9 that when his people suffer, he too suffers. It says here, in all their distress, he too was distress. He praises him for his kindness, which causes him to save his people. Look at verse 9. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He praises him for his sustaining love for his people. Look again, it says he lifted them up. He carried them all the days of old. And he praises him for his holiness when his people rebel. Look at verse 10. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy. And he himself fought against them. That is praise of God's consistency, his holiness, he couldn't simply allow his people to carry on in their sin, and so he turned. This wasn't God changing, though. It was God being consistent with his character. 
a lot of praise. I wonder when we pray on our own, how much time we spend praising God for his character. It's actually quite difficult, isn't it? It's easy just to leap straight into uh, to our issues, our problems, our concerns. And yes, God does want to hear from us about them. He does want to answer them. But I wonder how often we just stop and praise God for who he is. Maybe what holds us back is we don't feel mature enough to, to, to think of how we can praise him for his character. And if that is the case, well, all we need to do is open the Bible, don't we? Turn to God's word because it is full of knowledge about God. There's so much in there in which we can turn to and just read. And as we do so, we are praising God for for who he is. We're praising God for his character. I know a lot of you meet up to pray with others. It's great to have prayer partners. But again, it's easy just to jump straight into prayer, to share our concerns with one another. But actually, we just start by reading from God's word, focusing on him, and then giving him our requests. I was at a conference recently and uh, there was a, a retired um, principal of a theological college and uh, he himself said, actually I find it hard to pray personally and praise God for his character. And so he has some set prayers, uh, which are lovely prayers, full of prayers of praise. And he's reasoned through, praise them. But he you know, spends time and doesn't just do it to get it out of the way, but lovely prayers of praise. Praise of God's character is linked very closely to remembering and thanking God for what he's done. And if you look at 11, verse 11, the prayer warrior here talks of how his people recalled the days of old, how they remembered all the ways in which God had acted in the life of their nation. The day of Moses, when he brought them through the sea, he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. How the Lord guided them and gave them rest. And how he did all that by the Spirit of the Lord. And the implication of all that is that, well, if he's done all that already, could he not do that again? And yes, of course he could. And that is why it's good to look back and thank God for what he's done. Because that helps us look forward with a sense of hope and expectancy in our prayers. How much do we do that? How much do we look back and and thank God? Of course, there are obvious things to thank God for. We can praise him for for sending Jesus. We can praise him for dying for us on the cross. We can praise him for sending his spirit. But we can also think back on those specific prayers that we've asked and remember how he's answered them. It's very easy to praise something for God to answer the prayer and for us just to forget that's been dealt with, let's move on. But it's actually as we hold on to those answers to prayer that we can pray more confidently in the future. And that is where, in some ways, verses 1 to 6 come in. You know, it's a a prophecy for the people of Israel of God's victory over sin and death. And we know that has happened, that he has dealt with our guilt in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our sins, the penalty for them has been paid for. But we can pray now with confidence that when he comes again, he will wipe away every presence of sin in us. That he will eradicate us. That. Well, the prayer warrior is praiseful. He's also passionate. And that's one of the big things that comes through 
in this prayer. He knows God, the prayer warrior, he knows God is is over his creation. He knows he's a sovereign Lord. And he knows that when he prays, he has to submit to his authority. But he can still appeal to him. And so in verse 15, if you look there, he calls up to him and says, Look down from heaven and see. From Look down from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Look down. This is the sort of prayer that God meant last week when he said, I, I'm appointing watchmen who will give me no rest because they will be crying out to me day and night. People who are not afraid to ask questions of God. Because he is, isn't he? What is it? Look over the page in the top of page 752, verse 15. Where are your zeal and your might, your tenderness and compassion? They're withheld from us. And that is how we might feel at times, isn't it? So he's saying, show us your power. Because when you do so, we know that will be driven by your tenderness and your compassion towards us. That is what drives the things you do. Your desire to see your people redeemed. And the beginning of chapter 64 is even more passionate, isn't it? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Throughout the Bible, fire symbolizes the presence of a holy God. And if God were to come among his people, apply his fire to their unclean lips as he did to Isaiah, remember the beginning of Isaiah in chapter 6, what would happen? The twigs of their lives would be set ablaze. The lukewarm water of their souls would be boiling over. And the result is that God's enemies would know something about the name, the character of the one true God. And that is the purpose of God's revelation. That as people come to know him, they are filled with a sense of their guilt, but a sense of wonder at God's grace. So let let me ask, ask you, are you passionate in your praying? That doesn't mean we have to um, use sort of artificial language or whip up some sort of false emotion. But are we praying from our hearts? Do we really want God to answer our prayers? Or are we just going through the motions? It's great this week... um, There were men here praying half past six in the morning before work, praying for their their mates to be saved. Carried on throughout the week on Wednesday morning, there were women women praying for Spectrum. In the evening for the the women's outreach events of of the church and for, for their friends to be saved. Thursday evening we were praying for our children to be saved and to grow in their faith. Friday lunchtime another group was praying. It's great to be with people who are serious about prayer, who believe in the power of prayer, who are passionate about prayer. We may not be emotional and passionate in the way that uh, the world understands emotion and passion, but if we're praying from our hearts, if we're praying for God to have mercy on this lost world, 
then that is passion. I do pray that that passion would spread like fire through our church. The prayer warrior is passionate. He's also very personal. Look at him when he says to God, when he says, um, when he said before your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us, he then goes straight into verse 16, but you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. The basis of his request and his expectation that God will come to them is that they have been adopted as his children. And as we saw last week, it is a privileged position to be a child of God. And over the page, and in chapter 64, in verse 8, he makes the same appeal. He says, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. You are the one who's responsible for bringing us into existence. Why throw away what you have made? How did Jesus tell his disciples to pray when they asked him, Our Father, our Father in heaven. We are praying to a Father who wants what is best for his children. Do we really believe that? If we do, then just ask and trust that he knows what is best for you. He will answer your prayer in a way that is best for us. And we may not understand that. That is why it's important to cling on to the fact that he is our father and he loves us. Well, I said earlier how the divine warrior had come to destroy evil. But there is still evil in all of our hearts. And we see here in this prayer an acknowledgement of that because the prayer warrior is also penitent. Accepting when we have done wrong, when we need God's mercy and his forgiveness. Have a look at the second half of verse 5. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? Many people put, a sermon, or put human beings into two categories, don't they? They put them into the, the evil and, and everybody else who is generally okay. Um, we're trying to be good, we, we fail, but we're generally okay. What Isaiah is saying here is that actually compared to the holy God, none of us is okay because our hearts have all been affected by sin. And he gives a very vivid description of that, of sin and sinners. And note here that Isaiah is not just saying this of other people. He's saying this of himself as well. He's including himself in this. Look at verse 6. All of us, he says, have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Filthy rags is quite a strong term, particularly when he's not talking about the immoral things that they're doing, he's actually referring to the things they think are righteous. Even they are like filthy rags to God who is holy, who is perfect. That is quite a strong picture, isn't it? And moreover, he goes on, we all shrivel up 
like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Sin cuts us off from God and when we are cut off from him we die. There's no source of life anymore. It's what happens to a a nice green leaf shrivels up and dies. And our problem is our persistent sinning and inability to do anything about it ourselves is why we need to cry out to God before it is too late. Because the more we persist in going our way, the less we will see our need for God's grace and will become oblivious to our sin. That is the terrible situation described in verse 7. And that describes in very, very much the spiritual state of our country, doesn't it? Have a look at it. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. No one asks for forgiveness because they have become hardened to sin. They can't see their sin anymore. They've become blind and God has given them over to the desires of their heart. And yet Isaiah still pleads for forgiveness. Look at what he says in verse 9. Do not be angry beyond measure. Do not remember our sins forever. Look upon us, we pray, for we are your people. Remember us. Remember us in the light of your love and grace and mercy, not our sins. Let's never forget our need for ongoing confession and forgiveness from God as we walk through this life. And finally, in our prayers, we should also be patient and persistent. Have a look back at verse 4. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. No one has heard, no one has seen any God besides you. This is a personal God who reveals himself to his people. He has rent the heavens. He has come down. And people have seen, they have heard him. Anna and Simeon's prayer was answered, wasn't it? They saw him in front of their very eyes. God has made himself known. And he continues to listen to the prayers of his people. So when does he answer? On what basis does he answer our prayers? Is it the words we use? Is it um, the number of people we pray? Is it how godly we are in our behaviour? How hardworking we are in our ministry? Well, it's none of those, is it? Because God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. We're called to be patient to wait for God, to trust in him. It is an active patience rather than a a passive patience. Hence it's persistent because it means continuing to pray, continuing to believe when others have given up. It's recognising that it's better for something to happen in God's timing than for me to suddenly take it into my own hands because I've given up waiting for God. 
Isaiah at the time of this is waiting for the suffering servant of chapters 53. He's waiting for the restoration of Jerusalem. He's waiting for the divine warrior. And in the meantime, he's persisting in prayer. And so doing, he's being a prayer warrior. I pray that our church would be full of prayer warriors. That we would be praiseful, we would be passionate, we would be personal, we would be penitent, we would be patient, and we would be persistent.